Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and liquid hot lead. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 382. So this week, we're going to talk about uh, Chipmaker TSMC needs to hire 4,500 people. This has been big news uh, this past week. Uh, everyone is, at least in electrical engineering, is talking about that. Um, just today, or is it yesterday? Um, I thought it was today. Is it today? Yesterday. Apple launched the Vision Pro AR headset, or I think launching is the wrong term. They announced they are launching this AR headset because it's shipping next year. And then Steven has the Danger Pool. Oh, project, project Concept. Project Concept. Um, so let's start with the chip maker TM- TSMC. Um, so this this is building off of the Chips Act, so we, which we talked about in the past, like last fall, I want to say. We talked about how uh, the Chip Act is going to basically require somewhere north of 600,000 domestic manufacturing jobs here in the United States. Um, and this is kind of like, I think the first, I think TSMC is like the first fab that's going to be like in the chips act. That's actually going to be operational. Cause I think it's like 2024. They want, they're going to be operational. We've been, uh, we've been getting pictures on our Slack channel of the plant as it's been being built. And it is gigantic. Yeah. It's uh it's pretty crazy to see how much progress they're making in such little amount of time, which uh, the new plants out in Arizona, right? Correct. Um, but yeah, so TSMC's hiring 4,500 people to support these two fabs. Um, and I, I, th- I think they're, they've hired about half of them, but the big bulk of this article is about how the recruiting firms that TSMC are using have said it's really difficult to hire mostly because of this, they, they are quite, the article's quoting saying that it's like difficult working, like culture. The culture of work there is is uh, terrible. Um, but I think there's more to that than just what kind of what what the headline says. Yeah, in the first paragraph of this, there's a quote of "I cannot stress how brutal the work life balance is here." <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because they one of the things that they quote is uh, a glass door and they compare TSMC to Intel uh, for in, in the chip fab segment. Um, and TSMC only has like 90 reviews and like Intel has like 10,000 something reviews. But um, Intel is like 80 something percent positive and. TSMC is like 34%. Oof. Yikes. But also it's like there's a big size difference and Intel does way more other things than TSMC does. In terms of like how wide their portfolio is. 100%. Yeah. Also something to keep in mind with Glassdoor is that somebody who... People are more motivated to write negative comments than they are to go on there and write positive comments. So just keep that. There's always a bias. Yeah, there is a bias, uh, mostly because to use Glassdoor, 
you have to contribute to information, which is great. Most time when you go on Glassdoor, you're looking for a job, though. Right, right. Yeah. And and like I said, I mean, are you going to just go and arbitrarily write a nice thing about your company just out of the goodness of your heart, unmotivated? Do, yeah. Or, or just to or go look. Are you going to write one because you got laid off and you're mad? <laughs> yeah, but like, why would you even go to Glassdoor if you're not? What, what, like, what information are you seeking when you go there to write a good review for someone to get access to that information? It, it would be really interesting to, to know if there was some kind of like, in general, add like 10% to the number that they say. And that's reality of how people feel about the company. I don't know what that number would be. Maybe 10, 25, whatever. Yeah, I have no idea. But anyways, just the comparison to giant high-end chip manufacturers um startling difference but i don't think it's really just that though i think there's more problems tsmc is going to face and i think the big thing is is compensation and hiring too because i put it this way it's like you routinely hear about spacex and tesla of how difficult the work environments there are and people are still like going to go work there. Yeah, yeah. There's, I've I've heard some murmurs about uh, working at those locations, and uh, the the pay is high, but the pay is really high for a reason because they work you to the bone. Yeah, but that's what you just said. The pay is high. It is so. Uh, TSMC is. Uh, oh, by the way, these in these positions, we're talking like they're hiring master or PhD level engineers mm. uh, for these positions. Uh, so TSMC pays 160k roughly annually for PhDs with good experience. Where do they see that same person is earning 30k more at Intel? And Intel, looking at Glassdoor probably has a better work-life balance than TSMC does. And and really, when you look at it, um, basically, TSMC has to hire away from the big chip fabs that are here in the States. There's not a whole lot of new people going into that space uh, in, the United, in the United States yet. Um, we need to turn that around. Go listen to like last fall's podcast where... Steve and I were like, people need to start like getting degrees in this kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, 668,000 manufacturing jobs, right? Yeah. And a good chunk of those are going to be highly technical uh, engineering jobs. Yeah. Um, so even if TSMC gets an interview and hires or gives an offer to these engineers, Intel is counteracting with like 10 to 20 K over TSMC's offers too, to yeah. keep their engineers just maintaining. Yeah. And I think this partially stems from, there's a really good stat stat here where in Taiwan, um, there's 31% of students go into STEM. So much larger percentage of your population is going to STEM. So you have, more access to uh, those those that pool of 
of knowledge, I guess, for students. Whereas in the United States, it's 17.5%. Almost half. Hmm. Or less. Almost. Yeah, almost half. Um, in the opposite direction, though. Because usually when you say almost half, you mean it's under, but almost half. Right. Eh, right. Connotations of English language. Close weird. to half. Close to half. That's better. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what percentage of those that 17.5% is like master's or PhD in engineering versus Taiwan's 31% too. Because I bet you Taiwan's is higher as well. Percentage of those that are getting the higher level education. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things Taiwan, one of the biggest industries is that over there. So that, I mean, just locally probably grows a ton of talent. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, th that's just thirty-one percent of all students, right? Yes. But if we're talking about seventeen and a half percent of all students in the United States, that could be a much larger. Oh, much pool. larger number for sure. Yeah. I mean, United States is like what three hundred fifty million. What's Taiwan's population? Not three hundred fifty million. <laughs> uh, twenty-three point five million. Yeah. And I know it's not just that percentage, but um, it's, it's actually, I wonder what that. Yeah, that would be what, like four or five X this total number more in the United States. But also another thing to look at is the unemployment rate too. like the unemployment rate in the United States is like three point something percent right now. I, I, I try to find like the information, like what about just engineers? Not even just engineers with masters and PhD, which is what they want to hire, but just engineers in general. And interesting enough, it, like the data is put together with uh, agriculture professions. I'm hoping that wasn't like, hopefully the stat is not like locomotive engineers is what I was looking up. <laughs> but um, I think that was like, Two something percent, and some figures I was seeing, seeing was like one point seven percent unemployment rate for engineers in the United States. So it's even like less people are are looking for a job too. So yeah, I, I think it will shake out, and that's what we were talking about SpaceX and Tesla. And what you were saying there was they pay really high wages because the work environment is tough, and they expect you to. Uh, work long hours and that kind of stuff. But that's, you know, compared to like working at Ford or working at, um, guess NASA. I'm trying to think of any other domestic. Well, uh, Ford's rocket unionized, manufacturer. So what was that? Yeah. Ford is unionized. So there's, there's a lot of stipulations behind all of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about their designers. I'm pretty sure the engineers at Ford are not unionized. I think they are. Um, a friend of mine actually worked there, and I believe that he was required to. And that was years and years ago. Uh, so it may be different now. Yeah, but, it could be. Um, I remember him saying that you pretty much had to be. Well, there's SAE International. I don't know if that's a union, though. 
Well, regardless, the regardless the yeah. compensation for the for the high stress, high hours job, the compensation is just extra money. Not just. There's a lot more to it, but that's one of the compensation. Yeah, and that's how TSMC is going to have to solve that problem, but they're currently not paying more than the competition. Well, and maybe maybe they have a plan for that. Maybe their plan is, you know, see how much we can get at the level that we're saying right now, and then once that starts to stall, they adjust their numbers and Mm -hmm. make up. However, it's saying that TSMC's hired what half less than half of the number of people that they need but at the same time their facility's not ready yet yeah so, they still have you know, a year and a half to go right right so but then again like i said they may have to adjust what how they're handling that because mm-hmm. <laughs> you also do have to consider you know relocating people out to arizona there's some compensation involved in that too in other words, are people going to want to live in Arizona? I'm not painting it as a bad place. I'm just saying, like, if you want a lot of high-tech talent, Arizona doesn't come to mind as, as that place. Like Austin, Texas, or, or Silicon Valley, or a lot of other places come to yeah, mind. Yeah, I think it's mostly for the energy uh, in Arizona. It's also really dry, uh, which is great for chip. Now, they need a lot of water. I was just about to say, we, we covered that before. You need boatloads of water. You need boatloads of water. But the good thing about the water consumption is, I think it was something like 96% of that water is recycled. I think it's what we ca- we found when we talked about that years ago. Um, that was back in 2018. No, actually, I think we talked about also again in 2020 because Taiwan at the time was having droughts. And so we were just, we looked into water consumption, but they do use a billions of gallons of water. So even if you can recycle 99.99% of it, you still need a billion gallons of water to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, can be interesting. I think it what well, uh, not the knock, I guess I am knocking Arizona. But uh, the episode of King of the Hill, where when Peggy, they drive to Phoenix, Arizona, for some reason, or is that they get off the airplane? I can't remember, but like Peggy Hill says, like, Phoenix, Arizona is like the it's like the hubris of mankind. It's like building the the Tower of Babylon. Oh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Something like that. The hubris of mankind because how hot it was there. Oh, yeah. I think one of the, it's funny, my wife and I just finished, yeah, about a month ago, finished watching all of King of the Hill because oh, yeah. neither of us had seen all of it. And the one thing that they get wrong, I think, in that, like, there's a, there's so much that they get right about Texans to the point where it's just really, it's very comical. And obviously that's one of the points. But something they get wrong is the family's always outside. The family's always doing things uh, out in the sun and uh, only rarely do they mention that it's so ridiculously hot. Like, that's that's usually not how Texas is. I mean, no. don't get me wrong. We spend a lot of time outside, but that they did so many things outside where I was like, that's not Texas. They would have been doing that inside. <laughs> well, not just that, but it'd be like uh, we, you, you go outside and the first thing you say as a Texan, boy, it's hot outside. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's like, okay, that's out of the, that's out of the way. Now it's time to do whatever and mildly suffer through it. 
it's there's there's a few things in life that that require that and you know the saying boy it's hot outside or like when you when you strap down something to your truck or your trailer and you flick the strap and you say that ain't going nowhere that's <laughs> that's required you have to say that yeah <laughs> yeah no I, re- I remember stepping out of my car a few times and just going whoa because like they just it, it hits you <laughs> i i just like um when you step out of your car and your glasses immediately fog up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't have I, that problem, but dr- dr- driving, driving home and you're, 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 you're palming the steering wheel. Cause it's so hot. Like you don't want to actually grip it. But Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona is a lot hotter. It's just, it's just a dry heat, but it's uh it is hotter there. When we were in um, Vegas for DEF CON a few years ago, that was hot. Wow, that was next level hot. I, I, what always surprises me about Vegas um, is because it's in the desert. And usually at the desert at night, it gets cool. But the problem with Vegas is there's so much concrete that it just keeps the heat. And so it will be 2.30 in the morning and it's still like 92 degrees outside. It just... At least in Texas and Houston, it cools down to like the low 80s in the heat of like August, the heat of summer. At least when like when it's in like it's like 81, 82 outside, you don't immediately just start sweating when you go outside. It's like you're like, it's a little warm, but it's not too bad. But walking outside when it was 92 at night, it was just like, I, why? I imagine Phoenix, Arizona would be similar because it's in the desert and it's all concrete. Just hot. The, I, I never understood my Boy Scout troop back uh, back when I was younger. The, it, it always seemed to be that like summertime in Texas was the time that like all the big camps happened. And, and you know, you're all super excited about it. It's like, oh, summertime camping, this is great. And then... You, you try to go to bed for the first night out there and it's 85 degrees and you're just soaking in your own sweat trying to sleep. And I'm like, why are we doing, why are we not camping in January? Like this would be so much nicer. Oh, we camped in, we camped one, uh, once every month. So we did do winter camping and stuff. Yeah. I, we camped in the winter as well. It's just, we camped like probably three times as much in the summer. You know, there was always yeah. just, so much more and yeah i mean that's just how scheduling goes it's just ugh. it was there was a few times where i was i was out there in the middle of the night i'm like why am i here <laughs> you're, you're talking about that is i'm remembering a summer camp where it was really hot and for some reason everything was covered in daddy long leg spider oh. they're not spider zone <laughs> what are daddy they're like some kind of insect aren't they because that's yeah. spiders no, they're. I don't think they're arachnids. Yeah, they're not arachnids. They're, they're not. They're something else. Um, I've never seen that many ever again in my life because they were everywhere and in clusters. So you would get in your tent, and there'd be literally like a thousand in each corner of the tents, and they they would just leave. They they didn't mind you. But there was just you just knew there were a thousand in each tent 
and you would go to the mess hall and there'd be thousands of them in the in the corners of the mess hall too and just yeah you just left them alone just right? leave them alone but you forbid that you actually disturb the the what are we going to call them swarm <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like that uh, okay Damn, I, I i i got a i got a quick boy scout tangent story that's Another in line one. with that now uh, get one. this okay so texas is 800,000 miles wide. Uh, and so we decided to go to a campsite that was on the west side of Texas. So it was so far away that we had to camp to get to camp. <laughs> like we drove all day and then we we stayed at a, at a campsite. We get to this campsite way late at night, probably like 10 o'clock. And the goal was go to sleep, wake up, just get back on the road. So the our our scout troop just rented this one cabin that was big enough to fit the entire troop just the it was basically a big room with cots on the floor we get in there we 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 are all super tired from driving all day long and we just get in our cots and start to go to bed and uh it's in the middle of the night so so there's this one boy in the Boy Scout troop who was just silent all the time he he wasn't necessarily a shy guy he just never talked like ever uh, he would he would like stand in groups with people and like participate in the conversation in terms of like nodding and things like that, but just almost never had anything to say. Well, in the middle of the night, we get, we're all awakened to this kid thrashing in his uh, cot, like just flailing about, like almost like a seizure kind of thing. Doesn't even say a word or anything like that. We someone gets up and turns on the lights in the cabin, and a scorpion, uh, like scuttles off. And apparently it had fallen from the ceiling onto his face uh, in the middle of the night. He didn't even say a word. He just thrashed around and threw it off his face. And and we're all like, oh, my God, that, that fell on you. And we all look up and the ceiling is covered in scorpions. Like, I'm talking about not like two or three. We're talking about like probably at least 50 or 60 scorpions. Oh, no. And not like little ones, too. We're talking about ones like the width of your hand. So we had to spend like the next hour getting rid of scorpions just so we could go back to bed. And oh, yeah. It, that was that was a hell of a night but like that guy even even with a scorpion falling on your face didn't didn't even make a noise ridiculous that's that's camping in texas for you there <laughs> daddy long legs and scorpions yeah i can't imagine if you were what the equivalent of a scout in like australia would be oh they have like spider season over there Sp seasons uh yeah uh let me let me look it up so instead of instead of spring winter fall summer they have snake spider man of war what else oh e emu <laughs> that's yeah uh go to google and type in spider season in australia it uh it's it's like from a horror movie like the ground they they call it snowing spiders where like the Wait. ground is just covered in web and and obviously this is not all of Australia. There's this is I'm imagining like, a joke, but because Australia is, I think, large. I think landmass it's larger than the United States or or very close. I think it is larger. I'm just imagining like the United States covered in a big old spider web right now. Yeah, I look at these pictures. If you're afraid of spiders, don't look at them because uh, this is this is horrifying. The 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 the. the 
animals in Australia just are next level. <laughs> it's ridiculous. If, if you are from Australia, uh, let Steve and I know how correct we are in our Slack channel. <laughs> I think they have a spider. What is it? The, the Huntsman spider. That thing is... Oh God, I'm looking at a picture of it right now. I I don't like spiders. And no, <laughs> close that tab. <laughs> see, for me, spiders are. If I see the spider, I'm okay with it because it's when the when the spider sneaks up on you. That's when I'm not cool with it. And that's the thing is, spiders always sneak up on you. But if I see a spider like sitting over there or like on my desk scurrying around, like. Cool. Like, I know there's a spider here, so if I know I feel something crawling on me, it's going to be that spider. I don't freak out, but it's when that you feel that crawly feeling and you don't know what it is, that's when, like, your, your, your fight versus flight mechanic in your brain kicks off. That's when you start thrashing around. <laughs> start thrashing the around. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we somehow went from chick maker... TSMC needs to hire 4,500 people to uh, thrashing about on cots because spiders and scorpions fell on you. You never know what you're going to get on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I would love to like do a flow chart of one of these like uh, rants someday. Trains of thought. Trains of thought. Train thoughts. wreck of thought. Yeah, the train, train wreck of thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving on. Uh, Apple announced their vision pro ar headset to ship next year um the, i think it was today which is tuesday uh the 6th june 6th yeah uh, so it'll be a couple days after or they announced it a couple days before this podcast comes out um, so it's going to be three thousand five hundred dollars and when i saw that price I thought I was teleported to back when VR was quote new unquote again when the Oculus first came out. Um, because right now, I, I don't know where where they're going at with this product because the VR industry is getting less expensive, and there's a hardware purchasing decline. Like even the high end stuff, which is the the Valve Index, is that what it's called? Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. The valve index is like the most expensive or one of the more expensive ones, which it's also touted as like, I guess that's VR and this is augmented reality as well. Though. Uh, yeah. I was just about to say like, that's the one major difference here is that Apple isn't playing the strict VR game. They're yeah. really trying to augment and, uh, they're doing yeah they're doing the augmented reality or the mixed reality i think is what yeah, they, mixed reality the phrase they've been using now didn't microsoft have something like this called the microsoft i want to say it's like the microsoft solo but that is not it this sort of reminds me of you remember back in the day the google glass and and how google was was trying to say yes. like this is how this is how you're going to wear this all the time and it's going to change everything about the way that you see the world this kind of i don't know this seems akin to that yeah. it's the microsoft hololens which was like a mixed reality for business oh man when that come out like four or five years ago let's see when's the release 
three years. Oh, the Hololens looks like um, Tilt Five. The, yeah, those it does. It looks similar to that. Yeah. Oh wow, that it's not cheap either. No, no, it's it's in the multi thousand range. Yeah. Um. Well, what's very interesting about is so the Microsoft product is clearly this is where I'm get at with this. It's clearly geared towards business applications, right? Um, and that's what they originally sold it on. Like they had demos, like you would wear it. It would show like instructions for you to like for your for your factory workers to like build stuff, or like you would show up on a job site and it would show like all your tasks that you had to do there, and then also show you like oh go find the valve that looks like this. And so then you could, instead of having like, look at like a piece of paper or a schematic, it would just show it in your, you know, field of vision, which was kind of like what you were saying with the Google Glass, which I thought Google Glass was a brilliant concept, except it got taken over by what was called the glass holes. Mm, yeah. Um, I thought it was brilliant because I would love to have been able to try it out and actually do kind of what the microsoft hololens is doing but you could do it for less expensive because the google glass was less expensive uh piece of hardware um but apple isn't doing that like all their marketing stuff about it is like it's all commercial or or residential use like one of the first things was like oh all of Disney's 3D movies will be on it. It's like, no one is going to buy this to watch Disney 3D movies. Yeah, by themselves. Yeah, by themselves. I, it's a pro price, which is like the Microsoft HoloLens, but no pro applications were shown. And it does look like when you look at, if you look at the HoloLens compared to the Apple Pro Vision thing, it's the pro vision looks super fragile compared like the hololens looks like it could live like on a shelf in a in a warehouse the 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 vision pro looks like high-end ski goggles it does look like ski goggles but i'm just saying like the overall it, it looks like it would it, it would break really easily in my opinion um but it's a pro price with no pro applications. And I don't see like, especially since the consumer market is already getting cheaper in that regard. Like you have tilt five, which has a, it's a tilt five is a completely different kind of product too. Cause it uses that game board, the retro reflected mm -hmm. surface and stuff. So it actually has a completely different market. I think. Oh yeah. I was just saying that the Microsoft, uh, Oh yeah. How the, like that. Yeah. Well, it has like the, the, see-through prism kind of thing yeah yeah um but yeah i just in the in the consumer market it's that stuff is getting cheaper like i think the same year it comes out like this year like oculus is releasing something that's like 500 bucks uh yeah well, I, I was looking at it just earlier today yeah now the, that's the, vr the, not not mixed reality but it's like I could imagine, like, consumers are going to say see them as kind of the same thing. Absolutely, they are. And and the thing about that is, like, what is the per 
what is the purpose of the mixed reality thing? Or is is the expectation that you wake up and you put this thing on and you wear it all day long no, until you, you go to bed? No, you wear it when you sleep. <laughs> yeah, right. So the thing about it is, like, I I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be compared to VR the entire time, and one of the main hallmarks of that is going to be the price point. So, you know, thirty five hundred dollars versus even even some of the other ones I've, I've been looking at are in the 500 to $1,200 range to do effectively the same thing. Now there's probably people yelling right now saying, you know, that the vision pro, you know, does all these other, I don't know, because of its mixed reality, it, it's, it's different in some way. But what I think your, your point Parker is that they're going to be compared to each other. And I, I don't see that being done well for Apple. Yeah. Or, or I don't see the outcome being good for Apple on that. It, it just seems like, Apple is too late to the game on this. Maybe, but, but I mean, like they're like either, said, they're either, if they were, if they were released this product, let's say four or five years ago for this price point, I, we would probably be okay at it, but the market, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like releasing a high, a high spec or, uh, hobby level 3d printer nowadays mm, yeah like you can't compete against the 300 400 printers unless you go you know, I, yeah to the pro the, the pro market and you're talking you know in the pro market you buy the pro yes the pro printers outperform the the cheap consumer printers all day but this is a this is like a hololens it's a pro product but it's just not i don't know we'll see we'll, we'll see you know what's the worst thing that happens it sells a lot yeah yeah and 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 actually i was at um uh, micro center just the other day and walked by their 3d printer thing Ab above and beyond like the the hobby level stuff uh, micro center has a has a variety of 3d printers but the whole thing is like they have them all available right there that you can just go and snag at whatever price point you want. It's right there. Um, 3D printing's already at that level, and VR is too at, uh, at Micro Center. There was, there was plenty of options for it there. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see who ends up buying this stuff and what gets developed for it. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I hope I'm hoping for the engineers that worked on this. It's a commercial success and they all get raises. <laughs> I mean, it's an Apple product. It's going to sell a bunch. Not right? always. There are been some failures. Yeah, the, they've had some they've had some turds for sure. The shuffle. When, uh, which one was the shuffle? It was the iPad iPod with no screen. Oh, just it's just just a stick you put yeah uh, songs on. Did that not do well? No, I actually own one, and that was actually my favorite MP3 player. Funny or not? Oh yeah, oh, that was I like that one that a lot. Was, that was the little cube or the not no cube, the, little the version before one, right? that was like a like a stick of gum. Um, I really that was my actually I think I'll that was the only iPad or iPod I ever owned. I liked it a lot because I listen to a lot of radio and lots of and then in junction like I use Pandora, which is like a shuffle function. So I was like, oh, I can actually put my own music on this and listen to it like the radio because it would just serve up 
whatever's in there. But apparently people didn't like that. I had a, um, I had a, an iPod. I don't remember what version it was. It was one of the earlier ones. I got it for Christmas one year. And, uh, and it broke. And it broke not very long after I got it. And it was absolute garbage. Well, that sucks. I was, I was very upset about that one. Um, I actually, I actually have an MP3 player right over here. Whoa, ancient MP3 players. Whoa, what is that? A Surfans. Huh. Okay. Uh, looks like it's dead. Oh nope. Da-doo. Oh. Okay. And it's got the it's got the patent Apple wheel on it too. Yeah. But this thing's great. I love uh. Because I just it, it uses like you know micro SD card, but um, yeah, I use this a lot. It's funny enough though. This um, I like using this over even though it's thicker than my phone. It's smaller. It's like smaller than a, a deck of cards, um, because it doesn't break as easy <laughs> as a phone. <laughs> it, it it looks robust. Yeah, it's got um. The, pro- the problem with it is it does have like it's a shiny plastic back um, but it's a you know probably what cast aluminum enclosure oh, I like it a lot it's gone through the washing machine once and survived <laughs> can't say that about a regular phone fa- actually I bet you modern glued together phones can survive a washer oh I bet they could yeah maybe not the Spin cycle depends on where they get stuck. <laughs> I mean, if they're all bundled up in clothing, I'm I bet yeah, you it'd probably be fine. fine. Yeah, but it also survived the the dryer, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Apple. Any more comments on Apple Vision Pro AR? I just don't you know, think there's a market for it. I could be proven I, wrong, but I have to admit I haven't watched the video on it. So uh, you know, the, I'm I'm commenting on what I've read and just other commentary I've seen about it. So I need to go watch the video and see how they are presenting people using it. Um, but just from the articles I've read, I I, I just I don't get it. Or I, let's say I don't get it for that price point. I would agree. Then again, it's an Apple product, so <laughs> I mean, Every, everything you on it is out of your price point. I I just don't get most of it for the price point. Most of their products. Oh well. Oh well. All right, so on to the danger pool. Okay, so I've been I've been thinking about something a a small project for for a while now in my own personal work that I that I do at home um i do a lot of through hole soldering and i've been getting to the point where i'm like okay i don't want to do this by hand anymore just because just because of the time investment and so i've you know honestly for about two years now i've been on and off looking at options for something small for my basement that i could utilize for for faster soldering than just individual points on a board and there's a lot of options that are you know like small tabletop wave solder machines and things like that. And I, I like that. It's just, there's, they're bulky. They're a little bit power hungry 
and you have to just store this gigantic machine. I say gigantic. It's it's moderately large uh, for, for what I'm Are we talking about like a refrigerator sized or bigger? What's a good... A few bread boxes. Let's say that. So it's even smaller than I thought. It's like that, three like, microwaves then. One lawnmower size. How many football fields? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 0.046 football fields. Actually, that's probably probably a lot smaller than that, but uh, <clears throat> but yeah, just, for for the price point, like I don't I don't it, it just doesn't really make sense. On top of that, if you go look for small reflow ovens, all you really get is the super Chinese ones, and uh, in in the sense that like I'd, I'd be a little bit wary of purchasing that. So instead, I've been toying around with making a dip solder. Dev- uh, basically homemade dip solder device which by the way if if it, if anyone's laughing at me right now like I totally deserve that in terms of thinking about making a dip solder uh, device this is this would be a very dangerous thing so just keep that in mind if as you listen to what I'm about to say here but the uh, dip soldering typically involves a molten pool of solder that you use some kind of tool to dip your, your board in, you hold it in the pool and then pull it out and then clean things up. And, and there you go. It's a very old school, classic way of soldering. In fact, there's a really great YouTube video about a, uh, a manufacturing facility that made transistor radios in the fifties. I believe it 50s, was, yeah. and they just have this open vat of liquid solder or molten solder and a, ferris wheel contraption above it that they connect boards to and it just spins around and drops them right in or drops the bottom of the board right in solders the whole board and then you know bob's your uncle and so in thinking about that i've been toying around with the idea of like could i make my own that suits my needs and and you can buy dip solder you know standalone things the the biggest problem is i need a big one not necessarily like gigantic, but I need one that's big enough for my boards and my boards can be up to about 17 inches long. That's so that, two footballs, by the way. Yeah. Gigantic. Uh, so, so like it's, it's not hard to find a relatively large dip solder, uh, device, but I, I haven't, I haven't been able to find one that is big enough for all of the boards I want. So, okay. All of this, boils down to like could i make a, a simple contraption that is some kind of a heating element some kind of a vessel and uh and a frame that allows me to control the temperature and do some dip soldering well i started off by actually doing uh heat calculations on solder because i wanted to see like okay would a would a would a stove burner be enough to melt what i'm looking for or to to keep a, a pool of solder liquid because i've seen some videos of people just take legitimately take cast iron skillets and throw solder in it and then put on a stove and that's although that's that's somewhat fun i wouldn't put any solder in anything near anywhere that i eat so i wouldn't like it wasn't even in my mind to do anything on in a a kitchen area but 
heating elements and like portable stoves are really easy to get. Could you could you rig up some kind of a contraption that heats up a giant pool of solder uh, to the to the appropriate level? So uh, I actually went out and got a bit of data on 6040 solder. Just I I chose 6040 because it's it has a low melting temperature and it's it, it's easy to find data on it. So the idea was what how much energy would i need to heat up five kilograms of solder which five kilograms at first seems like a lot but it ends up not really being a lot when you need a whole pool of it uh i'll, I'll go into a little bit of that later but uh, i started off with five kilograms just to see what we're looking at so specific heat of 6040 solder is actually pretty low it's 0.173 joules per gram celsius and um the melting temperature is 190 degrees C. So if you if we say we want to start by getting the temperature from room temperature, which I chose 25 C, to go up to 190, if you do the specific heat equation on that, uh, you find out that you need 142, let's call it 143 kilojoules of energy to get to that level. And then that's just the amount of energy you need to get from room temperature to 190 C. Once you're at 190 C, you need to then basically break the bonds to actually melt the solder. So you need the, what is it called? Enthalpy of fusion. Uh, so there's an extra chunk of energy that you have to put into to overcome the melting uh, bonds. And that has, uh, for 6040, it's 37 joules per gram. So if I do all my calculations right, the amount of additional energy to get it to melt is an, is 185 kilojoules. So add those two numbers together, you end up at 327 kilojoules of energy in order to melt five kilograms of uh, 6040 uh, tin lead solder. The thing that's interesting about it, I didn't even plan for this, but uh, 327 kilojoules is almost the same number that it takes to uh, boil one gallon of water. So to go from 20 degrees C to a hundred degrees C for one gallon of water is 330 some odd kilojoules. So the interesting thing is like knowing that, you know, you're in the same ballpark range, like just that knowledge right there is like, okay, well we do that regularly on the stove, which means that a heating element is probably enough to melt, uh, uh, 50 uh, kilograms of, uh, sorry, five kilograms of, of solder. So if we're, if you're looking at 330 kilojoules, you know, a joule is a, a watt per second. So how many, if we just arbitrarily choose 30 minutes as your melting time, how many watts do you have to continuously dump into the solder in order to melt it within 30 minutes. And I found out that you just need to sustain 182 Watts of power, uh, into this chunk. That's assuming that's, you're not radiating heat back out. That's, that's the key element there. That's you're delivering 182 continuous to the whole thing, right? Uh, to the whole, yeah, I don't volume of the system. Solder. Yeah. The, to, to the system which is never going to happen, right? But that at least gives us a baseline of what's required to do that in 30 minutes. So I went out and just looked at like, okay, so kitchen stove burners, like what do they, what do they output? 
So a small one is around 1200 watts, mediums are 15 to 1800 watts, and large is 2500 watts. So in other words, they're already like 5x the margin that you need. So like you could no. radiate, you could radiate like a huge, uh, like you could not deliver an enormous amount of your total energy and still end up melting this stuff. All of this calculations was just there to, to ballpark. Like how hard is it to melt a huge chunk of solder? And the answer is really easy. Uh, the the biggest the biggest difficulty is is the volume that I'm looking at because you know I need my boards are sometimes up to like 17 inches long so I really need a a vessel that's like 18 to 20 inches long and uh, and a few inches wide like it's it's fairly rectangular but uh, if, if you took two heating elements and put them on a PID loop with a thermocouple into your molten solder I think it would not be hard to make a vat that is controllable. Uh, and the thing that's interesting is the, the size of the vessel that I'm looking at, I, I kind of arbitrarily chose 500 millimeters by 175 millimeters, which is almost 20 inches by, uh, what's 175? A handful of inches. Uh, the, the thing is, five kilograms only fills this to a depth of about six millimeters. So that five that that arbitrary number of five kilograms that I chose initially is kind of not enough. I think I'm going to actually need to fill this, but with about double that, like ten kilograms, just to get a thick enough uh, solder to be able to actually put the board in with leads hanging out of it. But even if you double the amount of mass you have in there, it's still effectively only doubles the amount of energy you need to put into it and in other words doubles the 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 watt requirement in there that still ends up being less than 400 watts of energy needing to go into it so even the small kitchen stove burners are are enough to uh to deliver that so all of this you know all this calculations aside this was all just there to be like, is it possible? And it seems very possible. So I'm going to play around with it a little bit and, and try to design something that could actually work with this. Cause I think, I think for a very relatively small amount of money, I could actually make the, a dip solder thing that meets all the requirements that I want. The biggest thing that you know, people have probably been thinking about is like, how are you going to keep this safe? Because it literally is just a huge vat of liquid, you know, solder at 375 Fahrenheit. Uh, that's not particularly safe. So, you know, I have to, that's, that's actually, that part is probably going to be way more difficult than designing anything else in this because it's literally just a hot plate with a vat of solder on it. With a pot on it. Yeah. Ba basically. Yeah. My, my, yeah. uh, question is what's the normal depth of a, a dip solder that's designed to dip a board into? I don't know, uh, but my gut feeling is it's beyond six millimeters. It doesn't need to be much beyond that because most of the time you clip your leads before wave soldering or dip soldering. You clip them to an extent like maybe two inches below the board. So you don't really need a whole lot. Now, do you, with dip soldering, do you need to, to lock the leads in? I don't believe you do. I actually haven't done it before, so <laughs> the I don't believe you do. I, with wave soldering, 
You don't have I to have wave. Had to, I haven't had to in the past. And yeah. wave soldering actually has physical force going pushing on it. Yeah, pushing on it. So, but I, I my guess is you don't have to do that. The and I wonder if really, you have to circulate it at all or anything. I, you know, I watched a video of of somebody doing it in a cast iron skillet, and they basically just took a paint scraper, scraped the oxide layer, dropped their board in, and it was it worked fine. So they just scraped the dross off and just went for it. That's it. And and I was actually surprised they scraped the dross off, and then like kind of dawdled around for a little bit. They did they didn't just dunk it in right away, and it was still fine. Like my thought was, you scrape it and you go right away. Yeah, uh, but. Even then, it didn't oxide. It didn't grow an oxide layer so fast, and uh, so with my boards being so long, I would be worried about bow, and you know, not actually having to tip the board into it. There's a lot of there's a lot of challenges that come with that. So, I'm actually ordering boards coming up here soon that I would like to use uh, dip soldering for. I, I put mounting holes on four corners uh, because they're so long, but also a mounting hole in the middle. Cause I'd like to build a little jig that holds the board at the four corners and in the middle. So I can keep it as flat as possible. And the jig allows me to hold something that's far away from the board that I can, you know, be really careful while I dip it in. Uh, perhaps there's even the, perhaps there's just some other jigging situations. Maybe I can even make something that holds it itself uh, over the dip solder pot, so I don't have to put my hands over that. Yeah, big old Ferris know, this, wheel. Yeah, Ferris wheel or or some kind of like swing arm or something like that that I can just, you know, be away from the pot while doing it. Um, I also thought about potentially using furnace bricks and putting this into like an enclosed brick kind of system and basically keep it outside, control it off of your, you know, 220 volt line and uh actually you don't it, like with these calculations i don't even think you need 220 uh volts i don't know how i don't know what uh what kind of um what current draw i'm gonna need right now but it just it just doesn't seem like it's gonna be as difficult as i thought mm -hmm. like i have a small dip solder guy and it, i use it almost mainly for uh tinning leads or tinning um wires and it's 300 watts for a little thing that's probably two inches a little disc that's two inches which seems way overkill now that i've done these calculations uh, yeah but how but fast does it heat up it doesn't take very long like you know i used 30 minutes as my calculation uh, or as my time for this Th this little device is way faster than that so but but at the you know the thing about it is I don't time isn't a huge issue for me. I don't I wouldn't need this bath to be molten in five minutes. Thirty minutes is totally fine. But then again, I could always just way oversize it and, and have it be five minutes. It doesn't seem like it would be that difficult. Mm -mm. Hmm. So I don't know. What well, well, this was the first step. So this was the math the napkin math steps to just say like could i just buy some simple heating elements or even could i just buy some uh some standalone you know uh, what's it stove elements what you could do too if if this worked out i would put in your design a way because you have you have a tig welder you can argon yeah. coat your your bath 
oh yeah just like slowly leak argon to the top i, I mean that's what wave solder machines they have a slow they use nitrogen because it's cheaper but you already have argon and you just slowly leak argon across your bath and um it'll just stay there i think argon will just stay there like nitrogen does hmm yeah i need to how much is a nitrogen generator they're not cheap are they? those are not inexpensive <laughs> i've okay. looked at them before been looking and, at getting and one you can't you can't get a little desktop nitrogen generator no. right <laughs> no they're they're pretty big and that you yeah. need a big compressor to run them on too right because yeah. you got to compress the air and that uses a i think they're membrane driven so you need a big yeah. differential to push push the non-nitrogen through isn't the atmosphere something like 70 percent nitrogen yeah that's why a membrane diffuser works really well. Yeah. Wow. That's actually the downs. That's why uh, carbon scrubbing is really hard to do. Because it's easy to, to like use a membrane to get carbon out, but there's not a, there's actually not a lot of carbon in the air overall. So it's really hard to like get any meaningful carbon out of it. We talked about that with the, the Porsche new fuel stuff <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago yeah we should i should check on that see where they're at see when i'm gonna start running uh recycled gasoline into my cars <laughs> i think about i so i think the danger pool i want to see you build it and like it works really well and i was actually thinking like for the vat that's about the size of my ultrasonic cleaner you know I, I I haven't picked a vat yet, uh, but the the vat is more about safety concerns than it is material. Yeah, I mean, I you don't I wouldn't want something to be super small, but just something that can sit at 190 degrees C. You you're and, gonna want stainless. Yeah, yeah, and I would like something that has a lip, uh, mm-hmm. such that I could mount it to something like secure it like i said if i if i were to make this out of furnace bricks or something of that sort something that i could drill into and hold it in place make a nice sturdy frame uh yeah i don't know i i haven't i haven't looked too too much into it but the the whole thing is it doesn't seem that difficult and i can just get one of those pid controllers from that i use with the brewery you know assuming it I actually don't know if they go high enough in temp. No, they do. They do. Yeah, they you do. Totally. You can get them to go high enough. You, uh, it's not that they don't go. High. You just have to choose the appropriate thermocouple that can uh, that can withstand those temperatures. So actually, you know, one of the things that would be uh, that I'd like to do with this is make uh, make a thermal well that goes into the vat. So the the depth of the solder needs to be enough that it can support a thermal well and still be able to solder the board on top mm-hmm. of that. So, so that, you need that, like a yeah. two inch deep stainless rectangle. Like kind of like a, like a, uh, a brownie pan, like, but a thick walled brownie pan, basically. I bet you can get one of those. I, I would not, it would not surprise me. Yeah, that would probably work. I think the safety aspect is also like I would just wear like like 
really heavy like welding clothes and stuff and then really really thick gloves that are heat resistant and then like a full face shield and stuff and then yeah and then, the, and then well, if you made your little holder you're fine right i don't see a big problem with that i would wear a respirator as well because oh yeah you i would you spray the bottom of the board with flux so the whole yeah. bottom of the board is coated so when you put that in it'll go up and smoke that's actually the thing is having a way to mechanically hold it in case you have to move. And so you don't drop it into the fl into your bath. That would be that exactly. splashing due to the droppage is actually probably your biggest concern. D yeah, exactly. So so a a a fixture or a jig that either clamps onto the edge of the board or mates with holes on the board. I like the one I like the idea of mating with holes because uh, then you won't fill those holes with solder. And, well, how are you going to hold on to it? Because the screws would get solder on them. The screws might... I haven't figured that out yet. The screws might get solder on them or will get solder on them. It's just I'm, perhaps... They're not going to heat up fast enough to actually wet, I don't think. Because it doesn't need to be in the bath very long. We're talking about. Yeah, if you seconds. use stainless bolts, fasteners, you might be okay. And especially since you won't have a really aggressive flux that will make the solder want to stick that stainless. You have to use a really aggressive flux to make that happen. Th that and, you know, the, just the thermal mass of a big bolt. I, I just don't think it's going to heat up enough for it to actually stick. Yeah, the other the other thing is I'm soldering a fairly large board, so I don't want to drop the temperature of the bath that much. So I may have to increase the temperature of the solder just before solder uh, before actually doing the dip. I don't know. There's there's a lot to play with in that. I think you'd make sure. I would. What I would do is make sure your holder can't go into the bath. Mean that it's bigger. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the the uh sewer the, the sewer cap problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Which means you have to make it round then. Well uh, yeah. If you Idea. absolutely didn't want it to go in there. But I guess it's not that deep. You you'll be fine. Yeah. I don't know. Like the, I just need to play with it. The, actually, you know, the funny thing is the most expensive part of this is the solder itself. Have you thought about getting one of those robotic soldering machines instead? I have. Yeah. Uh, this is more of just like, I don't know. This sounds fun. And yeah, I'm if just it, saying if it like was a failure, a it's not that much of a, of an issue. Yeah. I'm just saying from a production standpoint, um, Cause you know what's going to happen. You're going to build this this vat, and then in a year you be like, "Crap, I have a bigger board now." <laughs> <laughs> Make a bigger vat. Yeah. All right. This is really reminds me of the um, the big old bath of lie I had in my backyard for about a week. Oh, for anodizing. Uh, anti anodizing. Oh yeah, the, the remember etching it was, step. It, no, it was ripping the anodizing off. So I had, this is, we talked about this on the podcast six years ago. When I first bought the Wagoneer, I was polishing all the bumpers mm. and they're aluminum. And uh, polishing a, 
anodized and polishing anodized aluminum is like a futile effort because the oxide is so tough. But lye or basic solution will just rip the anodizing right off. And so that's what I did. But you have to make something big enough to hold a bumper. And so it was like a plywood rectangle with like a, tr- a like a cloth, not cloth, a, a tarp in it. <laughs> Worked great. That's not dangerous. It just don't. It's, oh man. This is like when you look at the old like 50s and 60s plants and stuff like that solder bath. But like look at um, acid dip tanks and stuff that they use for like oh, yeah. automotive facilities where like they're taking an entire car on the assembly line and it just goes it before paint it dips into the acid bath and it's literally like right there yep and so like if you walked across the assembly line and the car just bumped you you would just fall into the acid vat <laughs> and i did not make a crazy basic solution like because i i was like well i have to get rid of this too at the end but i just used it to clean all the pipes in the house <laughs> Did a good job. Nice. No clogs. Yeah, I'm sure. It, yeah, turns all of uh, it turns all of the grease into just uh, soap. just eats through it, right? Turns yeah. into soap. Turns into soap. Bacon soap. <laughs> oh yeah. So I'm gonna bet you we're gonna have a lot of people arguing this week about uh, the danger pool, people defending Apple, and. Uh, I don't know how many people will talk about TSMC stuff. We'll see. Maybe we'll get another picture of the facility. That'd be cool. That would be cool. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.